Welcome to another edition of Inside Rosenberg and Estes. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and today we're talking to Zachary Rothkin, and we're talking about due diligence and the due diligence process before you purchase a property. We're specifically going to talk about commercial properties today. Zachary, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be here. All right. So, Zachary, let's get started with you and your background. Tell us a little bit about how you came to the practice of law. So I started off, you know, most people don't know what they want to do for a living. And um, I guess I kind of ended up in law school. Um, after law school, um, I was doing landlord tenant work for about five years at a small firm downtown. Um, I broke my teeth going to housing court every day. Um, and after five years, there was an opportunity to come to Rosenberg and Estes. And I came here. Um, backtrack a little bit. When I was doing the LMT work for five years, um, in addition to going to housing court, I was very involved with rent stabilization and administrative law and regulatory issues, kind of what, as what I practice right now. And um, I kind of segued into that when I came here. And now I focus exclusively on rent stabilization, administrative law, and rent regulation issues uh, as they as they come across my desk. Um, and I've been here for about five years now. I started off as an associate, um, made, made my way up. I now head the administrative group at Rosenberg and Estes. Um, just a little pitch there. We are the largest uh, real estate law firm in New York. We have about 85, 90 attorneys, I believe. And we've been at the forefront of every single block of New York City shaping the way it is right now. Um, and, you know, we, we are the go-to. We have that um, expertise, uh, especially when it comes to rent regulation. So it's been a real opportunity to be here, and uh, I'm glad to talk more about it now. You know, Zachary, to your point about getting into the practice of law, I've often heard it said that many people get into the practice of law because they didn't want to go to medical school. Right. So uh, welcome to the profession for people who graduate but are not ready to be graduated and we're certainly glad that you chose the practice of law let's talk a little bit about administrative law zachary so i know that there's transactional law right so you do contracts in transactional law when you're purchasing a property with real estate uh, purchasing a real estate property and i know that there's litigation which is when there's a dispute over a litigation contract explain to the folks who are listening the folks who are watching what is administrative law? So that's a good question. Um, I see administrative law in the real estate context as kind of the bridge between transactions and litigation, right? Transactions, they're the ones working on the deals. They're the ones, you know, negotiating the numbers between the different sides, working on the financing. Um, litigation, what do they do? Anytime there are disputes, there's, they're the ones duking it out. When it comes to explaining why these things are what they are and what is the exposure here and what does this all mean that's when they come to us and we've developed an expertise in rent regulation which is part and parcel of literally you know a large percentage uh, i don't I wouldn't say every building but you know every block of new york city has some rent regulation in it whether currently or in the past that almost every deal you at least have to ask the questions and you know we have a sensitivity of what questions need to be asked and where to find those answers 
So that's particularly important before someone purchases a property. So what is so that and that process is called the due diligence process. What's involved in a due diligence process before you purchase a commercial property? So let's say let's take it really simple, make it really, really easy uh, for folks. Let's say I'm buying a multifamily house in Queens, like a two family house in Queens. What should the due diligence process look like? on a two family house in Queens, and then we can expand that and get more complicated. Okay, so it's important to give a little background here on um, explaining how the rent sta stabilization scheme works. And we have to go a little bit back in history um, prior to my uh, practice of law, in fact. Um, generally speaking, any building built before 1974 generally speaking, that contains six or more units at any point after 1974 um, <clears throat> is presumed to be subject to rent stabilization. That's in the statute. Now, up until 2019, there were ways to deregulate units, individual units from rent stabilization. Between 1994 and 2019, you were able to do that. Um, it, is an, it is The burden is on the owner of the building to establish that any individual unit is not subject to rent stabilization. So if it's a pre-1974 building that had six or more units at any time, it's presumed to be stabilized unless the owner can prove otherwise. So because the, the, you know, the burden is on the owner, anytime deals are switching hands or anytime financing is being made on a building, it's very important to know now that I will own the building or now that I'm going to be lending on a loan that this asset is involved with, what is it really worth? Will the owner be able to establish that um, the apartments that are said to be deregulated on the rent roll are not subject to rent stabilization on the rent roll truly are? And, you know, with that background, that's what we do. And we look into that. Now, sometimes, you know, I'm kind of skipping into the granular details here, but because your example involved a two family house in Queens, sometimes you can have a two family building. That looks like a two-family building, but in the eyes of the law, it might be more than a two-family building. How is that? So there's a concept in the law called a horizontal multiple dwelling. And this can come up a lot in um, you know, townhouses, one against the other, or in uh, garden masonette dwellings, where in the eyes of the law, the adjacent properties share so many um, building systems in common that in the eyes of the law, it's really one building. Okay, it can be different tax lots, but it could really be one building. So when I'm looking at a two-family house in Queens, the first thing that goes through my mind is, number one, are there horizontal multiple dwelling issues here? So I would look at the neighboring properties to see if there's any history of sharing common facilities between the buildings. Um, another thing you would look for in um, a building containing fewer than six units is you want to see, are there any um, tax benefits um, being taken by this building either presently or in the past, because that could subject um, a building to, to rent stabilization as well. Um, rare, more, you know, rarely you, you will find that a two-family building at some point contained six or more units, even though it doesn't right now, and that could subject to a building to rent stabilization as well. So how do we know when a, a building is subject to rent stable? Once we know that a building is pre-1974 and is within the ballpark of rent stabilization, how do we then confirm whether there's a good argument for apartments being um, 
deregulated from the rent stabilization scheme. So sometimes that involves going by going apartment by apartment. Um, you look at the leases, you see historically when this apartment started being treated as exempt and we look to see if it was done properly because there are many, many rules. The rent had to reach a certain, uh, a certain threshold. There had to be a vacancy at a certain point. Um, sometimes in order for the, I mean, always in order for the rent, because they're regulated to reach the certain thresholds, we need to determine if the rents reach those thresholds legally, right? We do the math, it's calculations. There are no shortcuts with these things. So those are all things we look into. Um, in addition to that, you know, I mentioned before pre-1974 buildings. Now, since 1974, when the Emergency Tenant Protection Act, uh, which is a statewide rent stabilization statute, was passed, uh, there have been many amendments to the Emergency Tenant Protection Act and the rent stabilization law. And most of those amendments in the statute, the legislation, they don't replace what was there before. A lot of it is cumulative. So you really have to know what happened in the past, when these things happened, which laws applied at the time, and how would that apply now if it's challenged now? And those are all things we contemplate um, and inform our clients about. Okay, so this is, in New York City, this is a process that you really need an expert to look into. So when someone, so basically any type of property that's an investment property probably needs due diligence to be done on it. If you were going to describe to us what your due diligence checklist would be, uh, I would imagine because of what you started saying right now that right at the top of that due diligence checklist is to look at the units to make sure that there are no stabilized units in there or if there are stabilized units, see if they can come off stabilization. What else is on your due diligence checklist for commercial properties? Okay, so anytime... Look, anyone who's buying a building, buying a building without knowing what you're buying is a recipe for disaster. Lending against a building where you don't know what you're lending against, you don't know if this loan will be paid because you don't know what this building is really worth and what the exposure really is, is also a recipe for disaster. And I'll go even further than that. Selling a building that you currently own or even maintaining a building that you currently own without knowing what your building really is about, um, needs this type of deep legal audit in order to really know what's going on. How do you sell a building? How do you know what to price it at um, if you don't know the exposure and the legal analysis concerning rent stabilization? So let's go back to your question now. Let's say I'm being asked to represent the purchaser of a building, okay? And we're put in touch with the seller. The seller says, okay, purchaser's counsel, what do you need uh, for this due diligence? You have two weeks. Let's get this done. What do you need from me? First thing I want to see is the building-wide rent roll. Okay, how many units are currently being treated as stabilized? How many are being treated as fair market? Now, when I see a pre-1974 building and the whole rent roll says fair market, bells go ringing through my head. Ding, ding. Let's look into this, okay? We always prioritize the apartments that are being treated as fair market over those that are continuously being treated as stabilized. Um, you know, for the stabilized apartments, we want to look to see if um, the rules and regulations are being properly complied with and the rents currently being charged are legal. That's a fairly easier process than determining whether the fair market apartments were properly deregulated, especially if they were deregulated 20 years ago. 
Um, so in addition to the rent roll, um, we would ask for to see the DHCR registration history and what's called the cases by building report. The DHCR registration history, uh, which started in 19, in the registration year 1984, owners are required annually to register rent-stabilized apartments with the agency, including the year that the apartment becomes permanently exempt. It's registered one time as permanently exempt. So we want to see, we, we, we can get a basic um, history of, of what happened here from the DHCR registration history. Now, it's important to know that DHCR registrations are self-serving documents, okay? These are not vetted by clerks at the agency. Owners just file them and they're processed and they show up in the report years later. So they can't be relied upon in and of themselves, but they give you some sort of idea of what most likely happened here in the past. So if I see on the DHCR registration history that in 2001, four of the apartments were deregulated, let's say, so I would ask to see the last stabilized lease from 2000, the year 2000. I would ask to see the first fair market lease from 2001. And if any individual apartment improvements were needed to get the rent to $2,000 between 2000 and 2001, because remember, rent increases are regulated. Often you need to do improvements to the apartment. This is pre-2019, pre generally speaking. You needed to do make improvements to the apartment to the apartment in order to get those increases, and that could be a lot of paperwork: checks, invoices, statements, affidavits, contracts. It could be a lot uh, that, that you need to go through in order to to show to prove deregulation. There, um, I mentioned before the the um, cases by building report. We look, we know how to read DHCR docket numbers based on the letters that it says before and after uh, each of the docket numbers. And we can tell right away um, what kind of orders were issued from DHCR in the past. And the biggest things we look for are what are called rent reduction orders, which in a nutshell means if at some point DHCR decided that a required service was not maintained in an apartment, let's say, the owner wasn't providing heat and DHCR found that to be true. What they do is issue a rent reduction order, which freezes the rent, typically a guideline percentage backwards from the time that it was uh, made effective, regardless of how long ago it was. This could be in the 80s or in the 90s. And until DHCR issues a rent restoration order, generally speaking, the apartment cannot become deregulated and the collectible rent cannot increase from that frozen rent. So if I see on the rent roll that there's all the apartments are fair market, but there are still outstanding rent reduction orders on the cases by building report, something's up here, something, something is off. Um, and so we look for things like that. Let's say I find that an, an individual apartment is not properly deregulated. So what happens next? It's a bit of a loaded question that's beyond the scope of this podcast. That's for a podcast in and of itself, just to explain, you know, the current rules of how that all works. But in a nutshell, um, we look back a few years and try to reconstruct what the rent might be uh, going back a few years to calculate what the exposure is on rent overcharges. Because remember, it's an owner's burden to show that it's it's deregulated. If you can't show that it was deregulated, it's by default going to be rent stabilized. And it's not going back into rent stabilization. 
It's a way of saying this has been rent stabilized all along. So uh, we give that exposure. Oftentimes it's based on estimates. We make a number of assumptions that we disclose um, and we do all that. Same thing with, with if, if we're approached by a lender uh, who's, who's, you know, the borrower is making certain representations to the lender about, about the building. And it could be many, many buildings that, that, that a lender is looking at and many, many loans, you know, a tranche of loans um, that uh, a, le a lender is asked uh, to evaluate here. So they'll come to me and we will typically, based, you know, if, if it's a large number of, of loans or a large number of apartments, typically um, lenders may be satisfied with a sample size and impute that sample size onto the rest of the portfolio. And, you know, we would look at it the same way. If the borrower is saying, this is a free market building, don't worry, I could charge whatever rents I want and uh, this loan will be paid. Well, guess what? <laughs> it, it, we we, we got to substantiate that because you as the borrower, it, the burden will be on you. In 2019, the state legislature completely overhauled the rent stabilization law, the ETPA, and really turned the real estate industry upside down overnight, June 14th of 2019. The rent stabilization rules were made much more onerous, and I mean, to the extreme. Um, those listening here, you know, it's, I know you know what I mean. Uh, again, another podcast to discuss uh, all the details of that. But, you know, some of the things that the HSTPA of 2019 did was it prospectively removed uh, the process of deregulation. So any apartment that was rent stabilized as of June 14th of 2019 will be stabilized forever, generally speaking. Um, in addition to that, it, it limited many of the increases that were previously av available, included, including upon a vacancy, um, after a long-term tenant vacates and a new tenant moves in, and on individual apartment improvements, IAIs, severely limited it. You used to be able to take 160th or 140th of an unlimited amount of costs and apply that to the rent, depending on the size of the building. Now the most you can get is 1168th or 1180th of a cap of $15,000 temporarily, which means the most you could get is either 83 or $89, no matter how much you spend above $15,000, it's just not worth it. So if you have loans um, that are pre-June of 2019, and the borrower at the time had a certain business plan, and those loans were made based on that business plan, things, things may be very different right now. And those are all things to consider and things that we look into and, and you know, are able to give some real sense of clarity to what these things really mean. So I want to talk a little bit about the the process of doing due diligence when when there are loans. So let's say let's say a bank is selling a, a tranche of loans like you mentioned to another bank. Would they have people in-house who do that due diligence? But they're, they're probably not experts in New York City real estate like you are. 
is that a great opportunity for somebody to reach out to you and bring you in? And what's, you know, what would you do? Would you take a sample size and then look at the sample size and that would impute whether, you know, X percentage was stabilized or not? So let's look at loans now. How does due diligence on loans differ from due diligence on actual property? So they differ in the sense that, from my experience, lenders um, are often more comfortable with more of a high-level analysis than those who will actually be operating and collecting rents on this building, okay? Um, but, you know, in terms of who would be doing that diligence, there are very talented and smart attorneys in-house at banks. From my experience, um, most of them just don't have rent stabilization uh, exposure over the years or experience, you know, to all the minute details, because it's such a nuanced area. It really is. And, you know, that's why we find people often come to us, uh, you know, as the experts in this to educate them and to, um, you know, give them the expo give them the clarity on what all this means. Um, you know, looking at a sample size, Look, we'll look at whatever the client wants us to look at. We'll look at 100% of the portfolio. We'll look at every single apartment. We'll do what the client wants. Looking at a sample size is often a way to, if the client is comfortable with that kind of imputing the sample size to the rest of the portfolio, of course, there are no guarantees that doing it that way will be accurate because you never know what, uh, you know, what, what, what kind of apartments on either extreme might look like. But it's, you know, sometimes a way that uh, being mindful of the time limitations that are often existent with due diligence, um, being able to get a good product across. Is there any type of New York City real estate that re would require a different process than, than the due diligence process you've outlined as far as residential property? I'm assuming that commercial property and warehouses and that sort of thing, they're not subject to the same type of regulations that we're talking about here. Is there a residential property where the due diligence process might be even slightly different or is everything, does everything need this level of scrutiny? Okay, so that's a good question. The current state of the law, <laughs> and you never know with Albany, by the time this podcast is over, I may be wrong. Uh, commercial real estate doesn't have a, a regulation scheme like residential does. Uh, retail warehouse, they don't have things like that. Um, and buildings with fewer than six units, generally speaking, does not either. Uh, again, Albany has been talking about all these things over the years. So uh, I'm sure, I hope we don't have another episode on that topic soon. That's my, uh, that's my hope and dream here. Um, but what I was describing before are typically garden variety rent stabilized assets or loans on those garden variety assets where you have a pre-1974 building that, you know, no, no, not, nothing out of the ordinary here. Sometimes you can have a post-1974 building, which will still be subject to rent stabilization treatment. Um, and what's that if they have tax benefits attached to them? And um, the tax benefits for post-1974 buildings involve, most common is 421A. And, you know, within my administrative team, we have 421A experts that I work with collaboratively um, literally every day. And, and we, we, we go, th the 
it's a diligence within a diligence often when it involves those types of properties because there's what's old 421A, um, the pre-2016, 2017 version of, of 421A, the, generally speaking, the entire building um, was subject to rent stabilization um, to, to be treated as rent stabilized. Once those benefits burned off, they would be... Uh, they, they would have a path to deregulation either by what's called lease notice deregulation or a vacancy occurring after the benefits expire. Um, 421G was another example. Um, this came around in the Giuliani days, um, downtown where buildings were converted to, to residential from office. Um, another example is, is J51. And you can have, you know, it's by by pre-1974 buildings as well, but uh, J51, if major capital improvements are made to a building, um, the building is required to be subject to rent stabilization. There, were, there was much litigation and continued litigation over uh, rent stabilization coverage and how it applies to J51. Um, sometimes you can have a building where even though it was built before 1974, if enough work was done to the building, if the building was in such a deteriorated condition and enough work was done to the building to rehabilitate it, in the eyes of the law, it's as if it was built before 1974. The statute says any building built or substantially rehabilitated after 1974 is exempt from rent stabilization coverage. And determining whether a building was substantially rehabilitated is a, uh, is a very important analysis to be done there are lots of details, lots of rules, and especially since the HSTPA of 2019, where substantial rehabilitation is one of the few paths to deregulate an entire building from rent stabilization, um, we've been inundated with questions and uh, due diligence requests uh, pertaining to substantial rehabilitation. Um, do, do people, Zachary, do people get, uh, do, do people get you involved pre- construction to say okay here's my building what, what would i need to do to this building for it to be considered substantial rehabilitation do they do they have the foresight to come to you ahead of time for that many of them do um i also get many calls after the construction was done and the money was spent saying did i do this right but many of them do ask me beforehand and say before I spend all this money and all this time and all this energy uh, doing all this work on the building, number one, is the building in a substantially deteriorated condition that I would even qualify? And number two, here's the work that I want to do. Do you think it would qualify? Now, I don't have a crystal ball, but you know we have the, those legal sensitivities based on our experience and based on what we've seen DHCR and the courts do over the years um, to have a good sense of you know, giving the client sound legal advice on the topic. Is there, uh, I'm, I, you know, I probably can guess at the answer to this, but the question begs to be asked, is there a pre-qualification process where you can take the, the architectural plans and the current state of the building and go to the, thar the authorities and say, here's my building. Tell me if it's substantially deteriorated. Here are the plans. This is the renovation that I'm planning on doing. Will this get it off of the rent stabilization? Uh, will, it, will it exempt it from rent stabilization moving forward? Can you pre-qualify a building? 
that's a good question. Um, DHCR gives owners the opportunity to file for what's called a prior opinion with DHCR. And there you do exactly like what you just said. You say, here's what the building is like right now. Here's the evidence of why it, of how it is what it is right now. Here's the work that I'm going to do. I'm going to pull all these permits. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to replace X, Y, and Z. Will this qualify? And DHCR will issue a prior opinion. Now, they're very clear about this. A prior opinion has the weight of an advisory opinion. So it's not an order. It's not a binding determination. On the other hand, it gives you a sense to feel their pulse, to say, if I do this, they'll probably grant it once I do it. Nothing is, again, nothing is set in stone, and they're very clear that we're not going to make any promises here. But sometimes clients will feel comfortable getting that prior opinion to know, should I or should I not? Sometimes the prior opinion is denied. And they say, it's a good thing I asked for this. I didn't spend all this money here. Um, sometimes it's granted, and they'll say, now I feel comfortable. Uh, I'll go ahead and do it. So, so would, a, would a good way to characterize that be that the prior opinion could disqualify you and then you would know, hey, listen, it's not worth doing the work. But then if they say, yeah, it looks like this would be good because it's not binding, you're still taking a chance, but you have a better better than average chance that it would work out. So in other words, listen, it can't hurt to go get the prior, uh, the advisory opinion uh, and have them say, OK, you know, this is this is likely to qualify but if they say it's not going to qualify, you save yourself all that aggravation, all that money, all that time, you know, it, the knockout is probably worth the investment, right? I would imagine. And this, this is something that you and your team do, right? You'll help them put the plan together so that they can go get that advisory opinion. Yeah, we do. We do. All, we put all that together. Look, there's always a risk, whether it gets granted, it still may get denied. And whether the prior opinion gets denied, it can still get granted. Um, but, you know, just a sense of comfort. Some, sometimes it, it doesn't always pay to do it. Sometimes my clients have time considerations where they just need to get the work in, uh, cost considerations. They need to rent up the building quicker, more quickly, because it, it could take months for this prior opinion to go through. So. Um, and you're talking about you're talking about buildings that need substantial improvement. I would imagine that they need improvement just to be livable. Correct. I mean, you're not. So the, the repairs have to be made anyway. Right. It, it's, it's often a question of, you know, making sure that it complies with DHCR's uh, very specific requirements of how and what to replace in the building. All right. Before we wrap up, Zachary, um, what are what do you see as the biggest like two or three mistakes that property owners or management companies make when it comes to I would say as property owners, when it comes to the due diligence process? What are the what are the biggest mistakes people make? The number one biggest mistake is saying there's a really good price on this building. I'm just going to buy this without doing due diligence. What could possibly go wrong? And then I get a call two weeks after they build, the, you know, they buy the building. I'm exaggerating, obviously, saying, get me out of this mess. That, that's an extreme situation. But buying a building without doing any due diligence, all things being equal, unless there are other considerations, um, it's just not always the most prudent course of action. And it's very important to know what you're buying, like I said before, because if you don't know what you're buying, you won't know what you're operating and you won't know what you're eventually selling, and you won't know what you're asking for a loan on. 
So it, it's just important to be an educated consumer and an educated owner as well. All right, Zachary, how do people get in touch with you if they want to ask questions or they, they have a building and they need and they need help or they're they're buying a building, they're selling a building, they're lending on a building. How do they get in touch with you? So my number is 212-551-8453. My email is Z-R-O-T-H-K-E-N at RosenbergEstis.com. You can look me up on the website. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. I'm here. All right, Zachary, we are going to put all that contact information down in the show notes. You can get it right down below where you're watching this video. Or if you're listening, all you need to do is go into the show notes on your phone or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find all of Zachary's contact information there. Zachary Rothkin, thank you so much for being on Inside Rosenberg and Estes today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Dave.